Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. In addition, you can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. For centuries, the area that would become the Yukon was mostly ignored. It was a land that most people did not see any potential in. Before Europeans began to arrive in the area, the indigenous would trade in copper nuggets, and most of the tribes of the area were aware of the gold that was sitting on the riverbed, but it was not valuable to them. The first Europeans to arrive in the area, the Hudson's Bay Company and the Russians during the first half of the 19th century, heard rumors of the gold in the area, but they ignored it for the immediate profits of the fur trade. Slowly, things started to change in the second half of the 19th century, and American prospectors began to arrive. Routes would be opened up on the Chilkoot and White Pass, with most Americans arriving between 1870 and 1890. In 1883, a man by the name of Ed Sheffelin would identify gold deposits in the Yukon. In 1885, gold was found on the Stewart River, and then, in 1886, Sheffelin led an expedition that struck gold at Forty Mile River. An interesting fact about Ed Sheffelin is that he founded Tombstone, Arizona, where the gunfight at the OK Corral would take place. By the late 1880s, hundreds of gold miners were searching for gold along the Yukon River with minimal success. That being said, there were small gold strikes, and by 1892, 1,600 prospectors were in the Yukon River Basin. Coming into the mix of all of this was George Carmack, Kate Carmack, and a man by the name of Skookum Jim Mason and Charlie Dawson. George Carmack had come to settle permanently in Alaska in 1885 to begin fishing, trading, and trapping. In 1887, he had begun a common-law relationship with Kate, which led many other miners to mock him for associating with an indigenous woman. Kate had been born in the Yukon in 1862, where her father was the head of the Tlingit Crow clan, and her mother was a member of the Tagish Wolf clan. She would marry her first cousin, but her husband and daughter died of influenza in Alaska. In 1887, along with her brother, Jim Mason, and her nephew Dawson, she started a packing, hunting, and prospecting partnership with George. In 1889, the couple lived in the 40-mile region where they would make their amazing discovery. In 1893, the couple had one daughter. Skookum Jim, who I will refer to under his birth name of Kish from this moment on, was working as a packer over the Chilkoot Pass during the 1880s when he earned that nickname, Skookum, for his strength and reliability. After assisting the William Ogilvy expedition in its exploration of the upper Yukon River, he would begin working with his sister, nephew, and brother-in-law. George Carmack would describe Keish as such, quote, Straight as a gun barrel, powerfully built with strong sloping shoulders, tapering towards the waist like a keystone. He was known as the best hunter and trapper on the river. In fact, he was a super specimen of the northern Indian. Dawson Charlie, also known as Kwa Kux, was working with his uncle Kish when they made their discovery. The group began looking for gold on what would be Bonanza River, which at the time was called Rabbit Creek. 
It is believed that Kate was the first person to make the discovery, while others say it was George Carmack or Quiche that discovered the gold. Regardless, the group agreed that George would be the official discoverer because Quiche was indigenous, and there was the worry that authorities would not recognize the claim as a result. George would measure out four claims along the river, two for himself and one for Quiche and Quack Cooks. The claims were registered the next day at a police post at Forty Mile River, and news spread quickly in the area of the find. By the end of August, all of Bonanza Creek had been claimed by miners. One prospector then set down a claim on a creek that would be called El Dorado Creek, and he discovered new sources of gold there, which were even richer than Bonanza. Claims quickly began to sell between miners for huge sums. By Christmas, Circle City, Alaska had received word about the finds, and prospectors began to set out from the city to get to the Klondike, despite the harsh winter weather. Among those miners, there was a real worry that all the best claims would be taken. At this time, the outside world had not heard about the gold strike, but some individuals in Ottawa had found out, but little attention was paid to it. It took some time for news to reach the wider world, through the winter of 1896-97, but on July 15, 1897, the first prospectors, including 68 new millionaires, from the Klondike arrived in San Francisco and two days later in Seattle, bringing with them huge amounts of gold. The press reported that the gold was worth $1.1 million. Amazingly, this was actually an underestimate of the actual amount that came in. Not surprisingly, people began to flock to the gold fields of the Yukon, and between 1897 and 1898, 100,000 people would try and reach the Klondike, with 30 to 40,000 actually making it. The reason for this huge influx is partly because of the economic recession in the United States at the time, leaving many unemployed and dealing with poverty. The promise of riches in the Yukon was too much to ignore for some. One newspaper said the following, quote, Men with families quit their jobs and left on the first steamers for the region where the gold was found. Storekeepers got the fever so bad they could hardly take time to wait on their customers. Barber shops closed. Everybody seemed to be under nervous strain. Nothing was heard on the streets but, when are you going? Policemen resigned and departed for the diggings. Preachers decided that mining would be more profitable. Even children became victims of the craze and several boys under 10 missing in one day were found at the wharf, awaiting an opportunity to go. The craze is a species of insanity. The lure of making money in the Klondike, or on those going to the Klondike, was too much for some people. William Wood, the mayor of Seattle, actually resigned and formed a company to transport prospectors to the Klondike. In regards to the transportation to the Klondike, there were several routes, but the gold could only be reached by the Yukon River. Getting to the Klondike was not exactly easy with terrible cold in the winters and hot and short summers with impassable rivers and mountainous terrain. The Canadian government, knowing the extreme terrain prospectors had to travel to get to the Yukon, put rules in place in 1897 to prevent many ill-equipped prospectors from dying en route, or while looking for gold. That year, Canadian authorities introduced rules that required anyone entering the Yukon territory to bring with them one year's worth of food, which weighed about 1,100 pounds. Add in the tools, camping equipment, and other items needed for the prospecting, many prospectors were moving one ton of weight. I want to look at the various routes that were used to get to the Klondike. First, you had the all-water route, 
which went from Seattle to the Alaska coast. From St. Michael at the Yukon Delta, it was possible to take a riverboat all the way to Dawson. With speed and no overland travel, it was a route that was much easier than the other routes. It was also very expensive. At the start of the stampede, tickets for this route were about $150 or $4,000 today. But by the winter, the cost was $1,000 or $27,000 today. In 1897, 1,800 prospectors went this route, but most were stuck on the river when the river froze in October. Only 43 of the 1,800 reached the Klondike before winter, and 35 of those had to return because they threw away most of their equipment en route. The Skagway route was used by most prospectors. Their ships would land at Dia and Skagway at the head of the Lynn Canal at the end of the Inside Passage, and from there they would travel over the mountain ranges into the Yukon and then down into the river network. Camps were sprung up along the route for prospectors to eat and sleep at. At first, you could go from Seattle to Dia for $40 or $1,100 today, but by the winter, steamships were no longer even releasing their prices because they were increasing them on a daily basis. If a prospector landed at Skagway, they took the White Pass Trail, later called the Dead Horse Trail, because of the huge number of horses who died en route. Most Klondikers would divide their belongings into 65-pound packages that could be carried on a man's back or by a sled for heavier loads. Typically, it took 30 round trips and a distance of 4,000 kilometers before all the supplies of the Klondiker had made the entire trip. If someone had a sled, a strongman needed 1,600 kilometers of trips taking 90 days to transport everything. The trail was a terrible route and was closed in late 1897, stranding 5,000 prospectors in Skagway. Those who landed at Dia took the Chilkoot Trail, which went up the Chilkoot Pass, and 22,000 prospectors went over that pass during the gold rush. Due to the need to take so much food and equipment, the cold, and the steepness of the slope, it often took a prospector an entire day to get to the top of the slope, and often they had to make numerous trips. The slope was too steep for animals, adding to the difficulty of getting gear over the top. Packers were able to charge up to $1 per pound or $27 today to carry goods to the top. Most of the packers were indigenous, which ended up bringing huge amounts of money into local communities. The route was also dangerous because of avalanches. On April 3, 1898, one avalanche killed over 60 people going over the Chilkoot Pass. Duncan Clark, a farm boy from Iowa, saw the avalanche and describes it, quote, It was horrible to see. Big, robust men, the very picture of health, dug from the snow, put on a sled, and hauled to the morgue. Forty were dead from the first day, my brother John among the number. Tappan Adney, a writer for Harper's Weekly, describes the pass as such, quote, There is nothing but the great wall of rock and earth. But stop. Look more closely. The mountain is alive. There is a continual moving train. There are perceptible only by their movement, just as ants are. They are human beings, but never did men look so small. It is impossible to give one an idea of the slowness with which things are moving. It takes a day to go four or five miles and back. It takes a dollar to do what 10 cents would do at home. In the 1897 publication of Goldfields of the Yukon and How to Get There, Climbing the Pass, which was done in mid-1897 in the book, is described the following way, quote, Stone House is indeed a desolate spot. 
Straight ahead of us, the field gradually slopes up towards the summit, which we could not see but could feel, and its touch made our flesh crawl. It does strike on to a man's soul to be comparatively alone in the wilderness of silence that is broken save for the rippling of the little cascades that tumble down the perpendicular sides of the mountains or the boom of the ice dropping from the glaciers that are crowning glory of the cliffs. It continues describing the long ascent and the quick descent to once again go back up with more items. Quote, At last we arrived at the last stage of our climb, and we took a survey of the almost perpendicular snow cliff over which we had to go. There was no way out of it, so up we went, following the advice and gradually crawling over the right side of the ascent, where there was a quantity of slide rock which gave us a fair foothold and enabled us to get over the ridge without any mishap. About three minutes sufficed for us to get to the bottom of this giant toboggan, and we were about three hours in again returning to our packs. Eventually, capitalism made the trip much easier. Steps were carved into the ice of the pass, 1500 in all, called the Golden Step, which could be used for a daily fee. By December of 1897, a tramway was set up that could take freight up at a cost of 8 to 30 cents, or 2 to 8 dollars today per pound. Five more tramways were soon built, charging between 2 dollars and 8 dollars per pound. In the spring of 1898, an aerial tramway allowed for up to nine tons of goods to be moved in just one hour. Once over the pass, and at the Yukon River, prospectors still had to take an 800-kilometer journey along the river to Dawson City. Due to people using boats that were not worthy of being on the water, and after the deaths of hundreds on the river, the Northwest Mounted Police introduced safety rules and the banning of women and children from going through the rapids. All boats had to have a licensed pilot as well. By May of 1898, 7,124 boats of varying sizes and quality were moving down the river, and the forests around the lakes were empty of trees. There were also the all-Canadian routes, which ran up from British Columbia, and three which started in Edmonton. But most were barely trails at all, and of the 1,660 prospectors who took the three routes out of Edmonton, only 685 arrived, and it took them 18 months to make the journey. The British Columbia route allowed a person to go from Ashcroft, up gorges, through mountains, and across swamps, and it was very difficult, and only a few prospectors, about 1,500, actually attempted this. Unlike gold rushes in the past, the Canadians practiced strict border controls, as I had mentioned. Both the U.S. and Canada claimed Dia and Skagway as their own, and early in the gold rush, the U.S. Army sent a detachment to Circle City to intervene if required in the Yukon, while the Canadians looked at preventing all American prospectors into Yukon territory. In the end, the U.S. agreed to make Dia a subport of entry for Canadians, and the Canadians permitted American miners in the Klondike. The Northwest Mounted Police, only a quarter century old, had a huge role to play in the Klondike, with people like Sir Sam Steele helping to make it the most orderly gold rush in history. The Northwest Mounted Police operated posts at all ports of entry, equipped with Maxim guns, with the orders to enforce the rules related to the year's supply of food, checking illegal weapons, and preventing the entry of criminals. They also enforced custom duties, which the American miners were not happy about. They often had to pay an average of 25% of the value of their goods and supplies. Northwest Mounted Police had a reputation of running the posts honestly, but there were rumors of some bribes. 
while prospectors attempted to smuggle in silk for women in the country, along with whiskey for the saloons. So what of the people who made it to the Klondike to be prospectors? Well, of the 30 to 40,000 who reached Dawson City, 15 to 20,000 actually became prospectors. Of those, 4,000 struck gold, and only a few hundred actually became rich. A big reason for this lack of success was that by the time most Klondikers arrived in 1898, the best creeks had long been claimed by the first arrivals or long-term miners in the area. All the claims along the Bonanza, El Dorado, Hunker, and Dominion Creeks were taken, and by July 1898, 10,000 more claims were put forward, causing miners to have to mine for gold farther and farther from where the gold actually was. While the first miners were able to get gold nearly on the surface of the water called placer gold, with some gold being about 15 to 30 feet beneath the surface, bench gold on hilltops from old streams was also found, but as time went on, the gold was harder to find. Most miners assumed gold would be along the creeks, but by late 1897 most of the hilltops were being mined. Another issue was that the gold was unevenly distributed in the areas where it was found, making it hard to predict where good mining sites would be. Those who were newly arrived in the Yukon were called Chikako, and it was only after a year that someone could be called a sourdough. For many that arrived in the Klondike, the time it took to get there soon resulted in being stranded through the winter, living in small shacks for seven months, mostly bored out of their minds. I'm not going to get into the methods of mining, what was used, because for me, the more interesting aspects of the Klondike are the journey the miners took and the society that sprang up in the Yukon because of the Klondike. In Dawson City, the boom town that sprang up from the Klondike gold rush, there were mostly men and a few women, most of whom were the wives of miners. There were women who entertained in gambling and dance halls, and some women would come to the Klondike because of the lavish spending by successful miners to attract the few women in the region. Unlike other boomtowns, the Northwest Mounted Police kept Dawson quite lawful. Gambling and prostitution were allowed, but robbery and murder were actually quite rare. This is in sharp contrast to Skagway, which was under the U.S. government's rules, and which was a hotbed of criminal activity. Dia and Skagway were small settlements before the gold rush, with no docking facilities. Within weeks of miners arriving, storehouses, saloons, and offices were springing up in both communities. John Muir, the noted author, wrote about Skagway, quote, A nest of ants taken into a strange country and stirred up by a stick. As was mentioned, Skagway, the more popular of the ports, became a place dominated by gunfire, drinking, and prostitution. On visiting the community, Sir Sam Steele said that it was, quote, little better than a hell on earth, about the roughest place in the world. By the summer of 1898, Skagway had 20,000 people in it, and it was the largest city in Alaska. In Skagway, Jefferson Randolph Soapy Smith operated with his gang, effectively controlling the entire city. His gang of 300 men cheated and stole from the prospectors who arrived. He operated three saloons on the guise that he was an upstanding member of the community, but he had several fake businesses. One was a fake telegraph office that charged to send messages to the rest of the continent, but nothing was ever sent, and a fake reply was usually received. Eventually, people grew fed up with Smith, and he was shot on July 8, 1898. 
even communities far from the Yukon, like Edmonton, saw an increase. At the time of the gold strike in the Yukon, Edmonton had 1,500 people, but by 1898, there were 4,000 living in the community. No place, though, increased to the point of Dawson City. Joseph Ledoux, an American who lived in the Yukon since 1882, operated a trading post at the Yukon River 70 kilometers above the mouth of the Klondike. Instead of staking claims for gold, he chose instead to stake out 65 hectares of swamp and moose pasture at the river, and he called it Dawson City, and made a small fortune selling lots and lumber to build buildings. He named it for the director of Canada's geographical survey, George Mercer Dawson, and by the winter of 1896, 500 people were living in the community with plots selling for $500 each, or $14,000 today. By the spring of 1898, the population was 30,000 strong, with buildings appearing on a daily basis. This was not good news for the community. There was no running water or sewer system, and only two springs for drinking water along with the river that was quickly becoming heavily polluted. By that spring, plots were selling for $10,000, or $280,000 today, with prime spots on Front Street selling for $20,000 or $560,000 today. A small log cabin would rent out for $100 or $2,800 today per month. On one city block, a huge white circus tent could be seen surrounded by ramshackle wooden buildings. Inside the tent was a portable bowling alley, a soda machine, two dozen pigeons, along with fine china and silver. The owners of the tent were two rich American women named Edith Van Buren and Mary Hitchcock, who perfectly showed the heyday of Dawson City and the things that you could find. One couple even made $30,000, or $500,000 today, in one single winter in the Yukon selling coffee and pies. With the community spraying up so quickly, and building codes not exactly being something considered, fires were common. The first major fire happened on November 25, 1897, when Belle Mitchell, a dance hall girl, accidentally started a fire. Amazingly, she started another one on October 14, 1898, which destroyed the post office, a bank, and two saloons. The worst fire occurred on April 26, 1899, when a saloon caught fire burning 117 buildings and causing $28 million in damages in today's funds. As can be expected, the logistics of getting food and other supplies to the community was critical and difficult. By the winter of 1897, it was clear that there was not enough food for the winter, and the Northwest Mounted Police started to evacuate prospectors without enough supplies. Salt was worth its weight in gold, and items such as nails for construction cost upwards of $28, or $784 today, per pound. Cans of butter sold for $5 a tin, or $140 today. There were only eight horses in Dawson in the winter of 1897, and all eight were slaughtered for dog food. By the spring, eggs sold for $3 each, or $84 today. Due to the lack of fresh food, scurvy was a big problem, as was dysentery, typhoid, and malaria. Alexander Anderson spent a winter in the Yukon in 1898 and spent all of his resources on a Christmas celebration, buying three potatoes for $3 along with apples and eggs for the same price. He also said restaurants would offer meals for any purse advertising common feed for a dollar, a square meal for $2, a belt buster for $3, and a mortal gorge for $4. One nearby hotel advertised good bunks for $2 a night, but clean sheets cost a dollar extra. For many in Dawson, it was a free-for-all in terms of drinking, gambling, and more. 
Rich prospectors were known to put down $1,000 a dice or $28,000 today, or $5,000 per pot in poker, equivalent to $140,000 today. To accommodate the money flowing around, elaborate opera houses were built, with singers brought in from around North America. Prospectors would spend huge amounts of money to have fun. Jimmy McMahon was rumored to spend $28,000 in an evening, or $784,000 today, and many saloons would sweep up gold dust off the floors, making fortunes in the process. As was mentioned, the Northwest Mounted Police were vital to keeping order in Dawson City. In all of 1898, there were no murders in the city and very few thefts. In all, only 150 arrests were made that entire year. The Northwest Mounted Police did arrest a few dozen people for prostitution in an attempt to regulate the sex industry, but the money from the fines issued were then used to fund local hospitals. The American prospectors outnumbered the Canadians 5 to 1, and while many Americans did not like coming up against the Canadian rules, in time they came to respect the Northwest Mounted Police and were happy not to be in danger of being robbed while they conducted their business. It was in the Klondike that the legend of Sam Steele would be formed, as shown in this Heritage Minute from the 1990s. Oh, he sits there in his red coat all spitting polished, and he says, Where, Where would you be going? I'm going to the Klondike to look at your gold fields, if there really is any. Not with this gambling gear and those revolvers. Men don't wear pistols in Canada. Canada be damned. I'm going to the Klondike. The Klondike is Canada. Pack those pistols in your saddlebags or get back to U.S. territory. I'm an American. You can't do this to me. In that case, I'll be lenient. We'll keep this gambling gear and you'll be back in the United States by sundown. Never drew no gun. I could have shot that guy right there. Who was he anyway? Superintendent Sam Steele of the Northwest Mounted Police. Why didn't I shoot him? Damn. In the days of the gold rush, a policeman, Sam Steele, became a legend of the Klondike. I don't know. Why didn't I shoot him? Women, like I mentioned before, made up a small portion of the people in the Klondike. By 1898, only 8% of the people in the Klondike territory were women. But in Dawson, that number was 12%, and less than 1% of the women worked as miners. Women found work in a variety of roles, including servers and seamstresses, and some operated successful roadhouses or worked in the packing trade. Belinda Mulrooney brought cloth and hot water bottles with her when she arrived in the Klondike in 1897. She sold those and used the money to operate a roadhouse and then a grand hotel in Dawson. She invested throughout the region and became the richest woman in the Klondike. Martha Black was abandoned by her husband on the way to the Klondike, but she continued on, becoming a prominent citizen in Dawson and investing in mining and business ventures, becoming wealthy. Only a small number of women worked in the entertainment and sex industries, with some actresses making great sums of money. Other women made more than male workers as chorus line girls and dance hall workers. In the sex industry, there were brothels and parlor houses, small independent cigar shops, and prostitutes who worked out of small huts. For the women on the lower rung of the sex industry, it was a hard life, and suicide rates were high. Due to the entertainment, the opera houses, and the nightlife, Dawson City became known as the Paris of the North. It was also the largest city north of Seattle and west of Winnipeg. Millionaires roamed the streets with the poor who could not catch a break. 
but Dawson City quickly had fire hydrants and was the first city in Western Canada to have electric lights. There was also great kindness in Dawson City, especially from the miners who missed their families. New mothers could expect to be brought food and even gold nuggets by miners who missed their own children and babies. One woman says, quote, Even the roughest looking of the miners wanted to hold my baby to see his toes and to feel his tiny fingers curl in their rough hands. Tap and Adney described the scene in Dawson during its peak, quote, It is a motley throng, every degree of person gathered from every corner of the earth, Australians with upturned sleeves and swagger, young Englishmen in golf stockings and tweeds, would-be miners in makanas and rubber boots and women too, everywhere. It is a vast herd. They crowd the boats and fill the streets. The Klondike Gold Rush, like so many gold rushes before it, was not destined to last forever. In 1898, the White Pass and Yukon Railway was started at Skagway and was completed by 1900, making the trip to the Yukon much easier. Unfortunately, the gold rush was beginning to taper off by the summer of 1898 as Klondikers were arriving in Dawson and leaving soon after. By 1899, the amount that could be made for work in Dawson fell to $100. By 1900, saying, ah, go to the Klondike, became a phrase of disgust. Dawson also began to change from a boomtown to a conservative community with paved streets and smartly dressed inhabitants. Even Skagway was becoming a respectable community by 1899. The true end to the gold rush, though, happened when gold was found elsewhere in the continent, including in Nome, Alaska, in September of 1898, and people left looking for easier gold and better money. By 1899, prospectors were leaving in droves. In a single week in August 1899, 8,000 left from Dawson alone. During those gold rush years between 1897 and 1899, $29 million in today's funds was recovered. The gold rush also impacted Canadian politics, with the Yukon Territory being formed by Parliament on June 13, 1898, in an effort to put Canadian jurisdiction over the Klondike. For those who made fortunes, things did not always end well. Alex MacDonald had made his fortune in Dawson City, and he continued to buy land even as the gold rush fell away, and he died in poverty. Antoine Stander had found gold at El Dorado and was the fourth richest man in the Klondike, but he spent his fortune on alcohol, gambling, and women, and ended up working at a ship's kitchen. Gene Allen had started a newspaper in Dawson, made a fortune, lost it all, and spent the rest of his life working at small newspapers. Sam Bonifield was a gambler and saloon owner who had a nervous breakdown and lost everything. Another man who went to the Klondike was a German immigrant named Friedrich Trump. He would head north in 1898 and opened up the Arctic Restaurant in May of that year, along with a hotel. He made a small fortune providing Klondikers with food, drink, and prostitutes. The Yukon Sun would write, For single men, the Arctic has excellent accommodations as well as the best restaurant in Bennett but I would not advise respectable women to go there to sleep, as they are liable to hear what would be repugnant to their feelings and uttered too by the depraved of their sex. When the Skagway to Whitehorse Railroad bypassed Bennett, Trump took down his restaurant and moved it to Whitehorse, where he opened a larger restaurant and hotel, and he continued with offering food, drinks, and women, adding in gambling. With the crackdown on prostitution coming, Trump left for Germany, and then he came back to America. For some, the Klondike was the start of an amazing career and life. Kate Rockwell, who became known as Klondike Kate, 
was an American dancer who found fame in Dawson City for her dancing, earning her that nickname. After the gold rush, she went to British Columbia and then Oregon where she homesteaded, and she continued to act and perform for the rest of her life. Her love and partner in Dawson, Alexander Potage, started his career in Dawson, eventually buying a theater there. He would go on to become a movie tycoon operating 84 theaters across North America. A sex assault charge in 1928 caused the decline of his business empire, and he died with little in his bank account. The aforementioned Martha Black would keep her money and become the second female member of the Canadian House of Commons. And Jack London would come to the Yukon during the gold rush, and it would inspire him to write the iconic The Call of the Wild. For the indigenous of the region, the Klondike Gold Rush was devastating. While many prospered briefly as packers and guides, the environmental damage of the gold mining on the rivers and forests was considerable. After the gold rush had come and gone, the fishing and hunting grounds of the indigenous had been destroyed, and by 1904, they needed aid and rations from the Northwest Mounted Police to prevent famine. As for Dawson, it would continue on while many other boomtowns from other gold rushes failed. By 1907, there were residents still living in the community, but many of the buildings were deserted, and by 1912, only 2,000 people remained. By 1972, 500 people were living in the community, but it did see a rebound beginning in that decade, reaching 1,300 people today. Tourism and the celebration of the Klondike past in Dawson remain strong to this day. What of the people who started it all? George and Kate would take their wealth from the gold find and move to a ranch near Modesto, California. But George soon abandoned Kate and moved to Seattle where he married another woman. He would live there in a 12-room house with his new wife and started buying real estate on the advice of his wife, Margaret. Even though he had immense wealth, George never stopped looking for gold and put down several claims, but nothing came close to his discovery at Bonanza Creek, and he would die at the age of 61 in 1922. Mount Carmack in Alaska is named for him. Kate would leave California after George left her and was told that she would not get alimony because she was not his lawful wife. She would return to the Yukon and Kish built her a cabin near his own, where she lived with her daughter, and she would pass away from the Spanish flu in 1920. Kish, despite being very wealthy from mining royalties, mined for the rest of his life and would pass away in Whitehorse at the age of only 55 in 1916, survived by his sister daughter Daisy, and cousin Tagish. Quack Cox would adopt the name Charles Henderson in 1901, and he spent money at a high rate and would sadly die in 1908 when he fell off the White Pass Railway Bridge. Gold mining continued in the region and still does, but nothing to the scale that was once seen. By 2005, it's estimated 1.25 million pounds of gold had been recovered from the Klondike over the past century. I hope you enjoyed that look at the Klondike Gold Rush, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And again, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Just like all of these wonderful people have, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, and Phil Maynard, along with Spencer M. and Iris Gray.
You can find Canadian History X on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash Canadian History X. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, Craig Baird. Or you can find me on Instagram. Just look for Bairdo37. Information comes from Canadian Encyclopedia, DawsonCity.ca, CanadaHistoryProject.ca, Pier 21, Wikipedia, CBC.ca, Goldfields of the Yukon and How to Get There, and Pat Burns, Cattle King, along with History.com. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.